Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see y'all here. You guys notice the green coming out? It's a little bit early, but that's okay. No problem here. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Um, Pastor Eric is still away on sabbatical and will be for some time. Uh, I haven't heard a word, which is probably a good thing. No news from Turkey, no headlines uh, featuring Pastor Eric. Uh, so that's probably a good thing. Um, but please continue to pray for him uh, during his 12 weeks, 12 weeks sabbatical. And um, yeah, we're just glad you're here. Before we get into God's word, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, what a great reminder that last song was of your grace, Lord, that um, no matter where we are with uh, tragedies or joys, uh, you are the one who sustains us. You're the one who gives us life, and you're the one who encourages us. So lift our heads today and give us ears to hear in your word. And Holy Spirit, we just pray you'd pinpoint what you want to pinpoint in each one of our hearts so that we can walk in a way that honors you. We do love you, and we want to love you more and live for you. So help us to do that, Lord. Uh, and do that through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, if you all were here last week, you know that we started a six-week series. And in this series, we are going to go on a treasure hunt for some hidden gems found in some very obscure, rarely read passages of Scripture. Uh, last week, our journey took us to the book of Job. Uh, next week, we're going to be in one of, most the, one of the most oddball in outlandish stories in a book full of outlandish stories. So don't you want to know what that is? Hmm. But this week, we are neither here nor there. We are going to be in the book of James. And when I tell you that, probably some of you are feeling like, well, hey, wait a minute here. James is not exactly an odd passage of Scripture. In fact, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible, and I read it all the time. And if you are one of those people who loves the book of James and reads it all the time, I salute you. Uh, but if that's you, I have got to say that you and I are very different people. Uh, last week, I called James one of the most confounding books of the New Testament. And a bit of honesty here, me personally, I rarely go to the book of James. In fact, it's one of the books of the Bible that makes me squirm the most. And I'm not alone in my aversion to it. Uh, actually, Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, said of the book of James, he says, it's a right straw-y epistle. Straw-y, like made out of straw. We don't use that word a whole lot. A right straw-y epistle compared to these others, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. And I don't think that Luther was questioning its inclusion in the Bible, but I think what he was saying is, is it doesn't quite measure up to clearly talking about what Jesus has done for us in the way that, say, you might find in Romans or Galatians. But for me, the biggest reason why I'm not a fan of the book of James is because it's so in my face with a lot of do this and this and that and this. And did you remember this? And by the way, did you do that? And it's very pragmatic. It's so focused on how we practically live out our faith that I can feel caught out by it at times. I bust my chops because I just feel like I'm not living up to this high standard that James puts out there. And in the past, when I've read through the book of James, I've really not been able to see much glimmer of hope in this book, only condemnation. But I'll say that's because I overlooked the hidden treasure that's in this book that we will uncover in a few minutes. 
But first, I want you guys to help me out with a little audience participation that's going to help us focus on our hidden treasure for this week. So I want you to imagine, uh, still a little early, but imagine that it's lunchtime, and I'm treating you to lunch today, so you're welcome, but it's only an imaginary lunch, so don't get too excited here. And I'm going to ask, I'm going to give you, present to you two options for your lunch, and you're going to have to choose one of them, and I want you to shout it out, just own it. And I bring you two silver platters. I say, please choose a lunch of either a garden salad or a plate of Twinkies. What will you have? Shout it out. I heard almost exclusively salad this time. Oh, I heard a few, there's a few Twinkies. There we go. I heard a few more Twinkies for service there. Okay. Hmm. Well, whichever platter you chose, uh, and there could have been a wide variety of reasons why you chose what you chose, right? I mean, maybe you chose the garden salad because the doctor said no Twinkies for you, right? Or maybe you chose the Twinkies because uh, tomatoes give you a rash. That's, that's what I always claim, right? Um, or because maybe you hadn't had Twinkies in a long time. Uh, but I think that for many of us, if we're trying to, to pin down why we choose one thing or the other, sometimes, I think to a large extent, it boils just down to our desires, our passions, our likes. We want what we want. And sometimes we just want a garden salad. And sometimes we feel like Twinkies. Simple as that. And it's not always a bad thing to base our decisions uh, based on our desires or passions. I mean, if you're painting a shed in your backyard or maybe an outhouse and you have the desire to paint it purple, you go right ahead. There's nothing wrong with that. You can throw some glitter on there, whatever you want to do to make it special. Um, And even in the choice between a salad and Twinkies, I would say that there's no morally right or wrong answer here. I mean, one is certainly healthier for us. Uh, but it doesn't make it morally right or wrong. Sometimes it's okay to base your choices on your desires and your passions. And yet there's other instances in life uh, when, morally speaking, there is a clear right or wrong choice for us. And in those cases, we shouldn't be swayed by the wrong types of passions or desires, even if we strongly want to do something. Uh, For instance, you might have to be in a situation with a coworker or maybe someone in your family or one of your friends and you have to correct them, and you have a choice of doing that in a very gentle way, or you have the choice of maybe lacing your words with a bit of venom. And if it's the case that this person just happened to do something that drove you up the wall, uh, you might want to put a little sting in your words to put them in their place. But that doesn't mean that our desire to do so ought to be the deciding factor in the words we say. Or uh, another instance here, you could be spending a night in watching Netflix, and there's a lot of choices out there in the digital world, hundreds of choices there, and looking at our desires and flipping through all of the hundreds of options, you might find out that what you really want to watch is that one show or movie that everybody's talking about, even though you know it won't be good for your soul. But that doesn't mean, in that case, we ought to let our desires make our decisions for us. But I would say, too, I think if we're honest, we have to admit it's not always easy to make the right choices because we have different desires and passions of the battle within us. Part of us want to make choices that honor God, and part of us just wants what we want, even if what we want doesn't happen to be God's best. So what do you do uh, when your passions and desires within you are duking it out, when part of you wants to do the right thing and part of you doesn't? How do you give those morally right inclinations the edge? Or to put it another way, 
in the battle of competing passions, how do you get the right passion to win? Now, that's the question that we're going to look at today in the book of James, and the hidden treasure that we uncover will give us the answer to how we get the right passion to win in our daily battles and our daily choices. So, if you've got your Bibles there in front of you or on your phone, I encourage you to open up to James chapter 3. Uh, we'll be starting in verse 1. James chapter 3. And just as you're turning over there, I'll give you a little bit of background on James. James, as you might already know, was the half-brother of Jesus. And after Jesus rose from the dead, James uh, actually arose as one of the top leaders in the church in Jerusalem. And as he writes this letter, he's writing to a very broad audience scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, most of them are Jews who've converted to Christianity. So they've, they've Jewish believers who put their trust in the Messiah. And the question that we want to get to in the book of James is this one that I've already asked here, is in the battle of the passions, how do you get the right passion to win? But James's starting point to get us into this discussion about desires and passions is actually about something very concrete. And he doesn't start with the example of a choice between a garden salad or a plate of Twinkies. I don't think the Twinkie was invented just yet. Uh, garden salads are probably around, not sure on that. Uh, but he starts with another choice that we face every day, and that's the choice of our words. Why do we choose the words that we do? And so our starting point for James is that we all need to watch out what we choose to say because our words have the potential to cause great damage. I'll be reading in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. James writes to his audience and says, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone's never at fault in what he says, he's the perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue's a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body, corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can, fresh, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or grapevine figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Okay, let's just hit the pause button right there and talk about what we just read here. It's uh, quite a big chunk of scripture. Uh, James starts out this section with a warning to teachers, and he basically says to people, hey, now, don't be so quick to jump in to want to teach because teachers are going to be judged more strictly. And then he moves to pretty quickly to the key reason why. Because one of the key troubles for teachers and for all of us is that we have to watch what we say because our words have the potential to cause great damage. And to show us how powerful and influential the tongue can be, even though it's small, 
He gives this list of examples. He says, well, consider like a bridle and horseback riding. Or consider a rudder with a ship. Or a spark with a forest fire. Even though these things are very small, they have a lot of influence and have a lot of potential. And you got to say, just in reading over this passage, that James has uh, a pretty negative view of the tongue. Reading verse 6 again, it says, The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. So there's a great potential for damage in how we choose our words. And as he talks about this, James basically says that the litmus test for keeping your whole body in check, uh, that is how you live your Christian life, is how you choose your words. Verse 2, he says, If anyone's never at fault in what he says, he's the perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. In other words, he's saying, if you can master your tongue, you've arrived as a disciple of Christ. Uh, If you can consistently speak well and not speak evil, uh, then you're there. So if you want to see how someone has progressed as a disciple of Christ, listen to what they say. Of course, the problem... Uh, that you might notice with this particular litmus test is that no one measures up. And James knows this. Notice that in verse 2, James says, we all stumble in many ways. And it's like James is acknowledging up front that, you know what? No one, not even himself, has arrived when it comes to guarding your words. And this is the very first glimmer of hope here that makes me like James just a little bit because it makes him seem a little bit more human here. He admits that we all blow it from time to time and uh, that none of us is perfect. But then on top of that, if we still had any hope left of teeming our tongue, he completely crushes it, right, in verse 7. He says, verse 7, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Not much hope there. Can you see why I don't like the book of James, right? Now, James is talking a little bit about animal training here, and maybe uh, I know many of you have pets. Uh, If you have a cat or dog or whatever you have, maybe you've taught it to do some really cool tricks. We have a miniature schnauzer at home named Coco. Uh, We have not been terribly successful in training him unless we are holding a snack uh, for him to do something. Uh, But maybe you guys are doing better. I do want to show you a slide of one guy uh, that our family met this past year in Pismo Beach, California. Uh, His name's Dana. I don't know his last name. But locally, he is known to people as the goat surfer because he has trained his pet goats how to surf. (laughs) Dana is there in the background cheering on his youngest goat, Goatee, during a really gnarly ride. And uh, how long did it take the goat surfer to train his three goats how to surf? I don't know. Why did he do this? I think he actually told us, but I can't remember. But the point here insofar as this relates to the book of James is that people can apply themselves to subdue and train all sorts of animals to do all sorts of crazy things. Yes, you can teach your goat how to surf, but no, you're never going to be able to tame your tongue. So, sorry, kid, out of luck, no cigar. And then he kind of finishes on this topic of the tongue, James, not Dana, basically saying, well, isn't that a shame that we can't tame the tongue? We really shouldn't be ripping people apart with our words, but we do. 
And then he just moves on nonchalantly to the next topic. Kind of like leaving us hopelessly hanging on for this solution on how to tame our tongues. But that solution never arrives. And when I'd read through the book of James in the past, this would just totally dumbfound me. It's like, I feel like James is just like calling us out, throwing us under the bus, and then stepping on the gas. You know, he just doesn't give us any way to deal with this problem that he's pointed out that we all have. And at the very least, I think one thing you can say is this passage is a really good one to convict us of our sin and about our own poor choices of words from time to time. But James doesn't really offer a way out, at least not yet. But he is going somewhere with this train of thought. He starts out by saying our words have the potential to cause great damage, but he doesn't leave it as that. He says, you know what? Our words are here, but beneath that, there's another layer that we need to consider. There's a layer below our words. Now, we originally asked this question in the battle of the competing passions, how do you get the right passion to win? And that's where James is going in his argument. Eventually, he's going to give us the answer to that. But the next train stop in James's argument is to expose these deeper, this deeper layer beneath our words. And in this next section, James suggests that our words and our actions are undergirded by our thinking. So you have your words here. We're saying, you know what? Underneath that are your thoughts. Let's read some of this picking up in verse 13. James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done and the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Okay, let's just pause right there and talk about our thoughts a little bit here. In this last part of chapter 3, James is contrasting these two different types of wisdom or two different types of thinking, the wisdom of the world and the wisdom that comes from God. And in bringing up this topic of wisdom, James is getting closer to the real issue of why we have trouble controlling our words. Because when he's talking about wisdom, he's essentially talking about our framework of thinking or our philosophy, uh, as it were, our, li- our life philosophy. And the, the way that we think about things is going to shape uh, not just the words that come out of our mouths, but all the other things that we do. And if you just ballpark these two types of wisdom that he talks about, these two types of ways of thinking, uh, one of them is going to be what I call the me-first way of thinking, and the other one is the consideration of others type of thinking. Uh, James says again in verse 14, he says, if you harder, harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. He's basically saying here, hey, saying here, hey if your philosophy of life 
where your framework of thinking is, you know what? It's all about me, baby. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Live life to the max. And don't we hear that kind of philosophy spouted all the time? It's all about you. Follow your heart. Choose your destiny, right? You have chosen the wisdom of the world. And you're going to bring out all sorts of chaos and all sorts of bad things, not only in your own life, but in the lives of others. And in contrast with that, so type called, that, that type of so-called wisdom, James says that the mindset we ought to adopt is that of God's wisdom. And he describes this type of wisdom or way of thinking in verse 17. He says, the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. And as we just read through this description of heavenly wisdom, notice how outward looking it is. It's peace-loving. It wants peace between people. It's considerate of other people. It's submissive, not trying to assert one's own rights or prerogatives or agendas, but it bends the knee to others. And it's full of mercy, something we don't see a whole lot of in our world today. And James ends this section with this beautiful thought, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. And if James ended the letter right there on that happy thought, we might be left with the impression that he was insinuating, you know what, people, right thinking is all you need. You've got problems with your words, you're tearing each other apart, but if you want to deal with your words, you've got to take care of your thinking, your philosophy first. All you got to do is adopt the right way of thinking, the right kind of wisdom, and voila, peace and harmony. Voila, right? No. The problem is, as we're going to get to in a second here, is James doesn't stop writing. He keeps on going. He doesn't say it's all about just thought life, but he's going to say, you know what? Here's your words. Here's your thoughts. But there is a deeper layer yet underneath it all. Yes, your words can cause destruction, and your words come from your way of thinking. But your way of thinking, it turns out, comes from somewhere, too. Uh, to kind of give you an analogy before we move forward, it's kind of like a plant growing up in your garden. It's starting to grow, right? Things are growing. Uh, you might have the fruit of the plant here. That's like your words. And then you have the, the stalk and the leaves are supporting it. It's like you're thinking. But he's saying there is a root issue here that we need to deal with. So he wants to talk about the root Deeper than our choice of words, there's our thought life. But even deeper than that, our way of thinking is fed by our passions, our desires, by what we want. So let's read in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. James continues by asking, he says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you can't have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. When you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason, that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. Let's pause right there. 
Uh, James starts out this section. He acknowledges that there is not peace in the camp. He just assumes that there's bickering and fighting. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? He knows they're there. And then he immediately gives the answer. He says, don't they come from your desires, which battle within you? Our desires, that's the root issue, our passions. Isn't it sometimes just because we want what we want? This is what James identifies as the root of the problem, our desires, our passions. And I think that this is why earlier James didn't just simply write as his solution to the tongue, the tongue has the power to destroy, so just try harder. Just make it work. Power through, buttercup. You can do it. Suck it up. It's not what he says. No, he says, we all stumble in many ways. He says, no man can tame the tongue. And he says, our thinking undergirds this, but underneath it all, even our way of thinking is fed by our passions. We want what we want. So what do we want? What does James think we want? Apparently, stuff for ourselves. Verse 2 in chapter 4 says, you want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you can't have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And then he busts all of our chops, and I think actually his own too. In verse 4, when he shockingly writes to his audience, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And that is a punch in the face if we ever got one. But James is calling it like he sees it, and he says something that we don't really want to hear. He's saying the problem beneath our words and beneath our thinking is our battling desires, and there is a part of us that silently screams out, I love the world. I want the stuff of the world, and I want to be friends with the world. Do you know that voice? I'm a pastor, and I know that voice. Now, I will also add that because I put my trust in Jesus and become a Christian, part of God's family, that that's not the only voice I hear. God's put his Holy Spirit in me, as he has you, if you're a believer. And so I also hear a voice longing for the right things, the godly things. Uh, But these competing desires... Or competing passions are something that I'm familiar with, and maybe you are as well. Sometimes I want the things of God, and other times I want my own spiritual Twinkies. But this leads us back to our original question. Well, in the battle of these competing desires, how do you get the right passion to win? If it's just a matter of wanting what you want, is there any solution? And James finally gives us the answer to this question in the last few verses we're going to look at today. And what he says is our hidden treasure for today. The answer to the question is that the way to win the battle of the passions is to rely on God's grace. In other words, to accept God's help and to depend on his strength and not our own. Now, remember up to this point, he's already called him out and said, you adulterous people, your problem is deep down. There's a part of you that loves the world. And that is a hard thing for us to hear. But then he gives this marvelous solution to this battle of competing passions in verse 6. He says, but he, referring to God, but he gives us more grace. 
Amen. He gives us more grace. Now, isn't that a breath of fresh air that you didn't know was in the book of James? And this next passage of James could almost change my opinion of the entire book. Uh, Reading more fully, James says in verse 6, he says, But he, God, gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he, he will lift you up. The way to win the battle of the passions within us is to rely on God's grace, to depend on his strength, his help. Now, God's grace, it's his unmerited favor. It means that we depend on his goodness and love and kindness to us, even though we haven't earned it from what we've done, even though we don't deserve it. And in this case, James tells his audience to submit to God. That means that they're to put themselves under God and acknowledge that right order, God first and then us far below that. He's the boss and we are not. And then he tells them to come near to God, and that means that we come and open up our hearts to God and stop trying to hide from him like that would work anyway. Uh, Just when I was thinking about this, I thought about uh, a storybook that we used to read to my uh, oldest daughter, Kate, when she was little. It was the Alice in Bible Land series, if you know that. And Alice goes and visits Jonah. And Jonah's trying to hide from God. And we would tell her little daughter, we'd ask her, say, hey, uh, can you hide from God? And she'd look at the picture there and say, no, God is everywhere. So simple, even a five-year-old can get it, and yet we still try to hide uh, from him. And then among these other things, James tells them, strangely enough, in verse 9, he says, Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. And this verse, I have to say, might not make much sense to us. I mean, at least not out of context. I mean, imagine if you're doing your daily Bible reading on your Bible app and This is your verse for the day, and you say, hey, that's a great verse. I'm going to post that up as a meme on my Facebook account, right? Someone's actually done that. So here you go. It's your happy bunnies. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter. Okay, it makes no sense to us, right? But James, the point that James is making with this instruction to grieve, mourn, and wail is that if we're going to give that godly hunger in us the edge over the hunger for the stuff of the world. We need to come to grips with our own sinfulness and our own brokenness and our own need and bring that before God so that we can depend on him and not our own strength. It's kind of like we go before God uh, naked, so to speak, and we say something like, you know, God, at times I do love the stuff of the world and sometimes I do want all that, but I need your help. I need your grace. Please help me to change my desires. Help me to change my thinking and the words and actions that flow out of all that because I need your strength, your ability. I need you, Holy Spirit, to help me because I can't do this on my own. I need you. So uh, let me ask you today, this is a point of application you know, where do you feel the battle or the passions most intensely? intensely? 
Do you hear uh, a whispering desire to dull the pain of life with some substance? And are you willing to do whatever it takes to get comfortably numb? Or do you hunger for people around you to acknowledge your worth, but you are willing to tear others apart with your words so that you look good in comparison? Or is there a craving for pornography because, hey, you just want what you want? Regardless of where we feel the battle of the passions most acutely, the key to winning the battle of passions is to humble ourselves and to go with our brokenness before God. We don't try to muscle it out or just try harder on our own strength. We bring our broken, needy selves to him in humility and look for him to lift us up. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And this truth is the hidden treasure in the book of James, a book that seems on the surface at least to be a list of so many do's and don'ts. In this book that Martin Luther wasn't much of a fan of because it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it, actually has as a hidden treasure this powerful message of God's grace. And the gospel's all about grace. So, surprise, Martin. Who knew? It's right there all along. And as I close, I'll say that humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up is, it relates to the message of what Christianity is all about. The message of Christianity is not try really hard and maybe God will accept you. The message of Christianity is not try really hard to copy Jesus and life is just going to be great. The message of Christianity is all about, we've all blown it, or as James admits, we all stumble in many ways, and we need God's grace. We need his help. Our solution is not to double down and try harder to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Our solution is to humble ourselves and admit our sin before God and let him lift us up by the way that he's provided to fix our problem. And God has fixed this problem, this broken relationship between us and him by what he did through Jesus. God took on a human nature in Jesus, and Jesus did what you and I couldn't do. He lived a perfect life. He died to pay for sin, and he didn't pay for his own sin because he didn't have any sin. But when Jesus died on the cross, he took our punishment, paid the penalty for our sin so that we could be forgiven and have a clean slate before God. And then three days later, he rose from the dead to show his victory over death and over sin so we could have confidence in him. And what we need to do to take advantage of what God has done for us is we need to repent or turn away from our sin, our way of going, and turn toward God. We say, God, you know what? I don't want to live as my own boss anymore. I don't want to keep on going my own way. I want to go your way. Teach me how to do that. And then we need to put our faith or put our trust in what Jesus did on the cross to pay for our sins. We stop trusting in our own goodness. We stop trusting in our own spiritual resume, so to speak, before God, because, frankly, none of us measure up. But instead, we put our trust in what Jesus has done for us by dying for our sins and by rising from the dead. And I want to say, if you have never uh, made that decision to put your faith in Jesus before, I'm going to give you a chance to uh, right now. 
You can have your sins forgiven by what he did. Uh, You can start walking in a right relationship with God this morning. But that decision's up to you. So what's going to happen here is I'm going to say, as I close here, the words of a prayer. And if uh, the words of this prayer reflect what's going on in your heart right now, speak them to God. You can say them silently. You can say them out loud. But do some business with God uh, as we close here. If this is your heart, go ahead and pray this to him. Pray this to God. Lord, I heard this morning that we all stumble in many ways. And I know that's true in my own life. I've blown it in my words, in my thoughts, and my actions. Uh, and I'm sorry. I want to turn away from being my own boss and learn to live in submission to you. Help me to do that. I don't put my trust in myself, but I put my trust in what you did for me through Jesus Christ. I believe that you, Jesus, died for my sins. You paid the penalty that I should have taken and that you rose from the dead. Thank you for doing that. I want to know you more. I want to follow after you. Help me to do that. Pray this in Jesus' name.